Well, if you have your Bibles open to John chapter number 8 on both campuses, would you shout out loud, amen. 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 I want to begin today in John chapter number 8 by affirming with you the, the truth that we learned last Sunday and that we really are spending this entire month of October emphasizing together. It's this simple truth to say Jesus is enough. And he really is. In fact, I want you to say that out loud with me. Would you, would you repeat it with me? Let's say it. Jesus is enough. One more time, like you really believe it. Jesus is enough. He is. Jesus is enough. And we're learning this as we're thinking about his I am statements made so frequently in the Gospel of John. Between John chapter 6 and John chapter number 15, there are about seven different times when Jesus looks into the eyes of the people that he's speaking to. He squares his shoulders and he says to them, I am what you need. I am everything that you need. And we're learning that over these weeks. Last Sunday, we began by looking at his statement, his declaration, I am the bread of life. Do you remember that from last Sunday? I am the bread of life. Here's what he was saying. I am the bread that will satisfy you. Don't spend your life laboring after perishing bread. It's never going to fill you up anyway. I will satisfy all of your longings. And secondly, I am the bread that endures unto eternal life. He said, I will give you eternal life. Last Sunday, I am the bread of life. Today... We're going to talk about his statement in John chapter number 8 where he says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Do you know what today is? Today is October the 9th. And the reason that's important is because today, October the 9th, is the first day of the Jewish feast of tabernacles, or more commonly today known as the feast or the festival of Sukkot. If you have any Jewish friends, in all likelihood, if they are observant Jews at all, they are commemorating today the beginning of Sukkot. Now, the Bible name for this Jewish festival, as I mentioned, is the festival of tabernacles or the festival of booths. And today, we're going to listen to Jesus declare himself to be the light of the world as he is celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I'm going to need for you to do something if this is going to be helpful for you today, all right? I'm going to need for you to shift intentionally out of your Western mindset for just a few minutes. Can you do that? And I'm going to need you even to go back in time a little bit in your mind and, uh, and, and, and don't just read pages on, or words on the page. I want you to immerse yourself in the text. And I want you to, to see and sense and, and smell and be a part of everything that we're going to read about in John chapter number 7 and chapter number 8. Let me begin with you in chapter number 7 and verse number 2 where the Bible very plainly tells us in this passage that it is the time of the Jews' feast of tabernacles. Verse number 2 of chapter 7, Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. This feast of tabernacles, this annual celebration that God had commanded the Jews to participate in, was one of three major 
feasts that all Jewish families were required to celebrate as the, as the people of God. Uh, in Leviticus chapter number 23, God describes the purpose and the plan for the Feast of Tabernacles. Let me just read it to you. You don't have to turn. Listen to Leviticus chapter 23, beginning in verse number 40. He says, You shall take unto you on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacle branches of good strong trees, branches of palm trees, branches of thick trees, willows from the brook. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You are to keep this as a feast to the Lord for seven days every year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations, even until today. They're celebrating Sukkot all around the world. A statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. Now during these seven days, verse 42 says, you shall dwell in booths or tabernacles, or Sukkot is the Hebrew word, you shall dwell in tabernacles or tents or booths. Uh, All of the Israelites shall dwell in booths. You are to do this, verse 43 says, so that your generations may know and never forget that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths or tents when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. There you have the, God's plan and his reasoning behind the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. He says, every year for seven days, I want you to take some branches and I want you to build a hut, a lean-to, a, a booth, make it a, a tent of sorts. And for these seven days, I want you to come out of your houses and live, literally live, in this temporary dwelling that you're going to build. And he says that I want you to do this so that you will never forget that when your fathers came out of Egypt for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness, and during those 40 years, they lived in these tabernacles, in these tents, or these booths. Even until today, all over the world, this week, There are Jewish people who are celebrating this by building lean-tos. Now, they don't so much use branches anymore. They they, they now use tents or uh, uh, metal poles and put tarps over it. But for, for a modern Jewish family, it's sort of like camping in the backyard. Well, it's not sort of like camping in the backyard. It is camping in the backyard. And you can imagine how these Jewish children love this particular Feast of Tabernacles. But they're to come out and to live in these tents or these tabernacles to remember that this is the way their ancestors lived all those years ago. Well, that celebration is exactly what's taking place in John chapter 7 and 8. In fact, look at verse number 10. Chapter 7, verse 10 says, When his brethren were gone up to Jerusalem, then Jesus also went up unto the feast. So chapter 7, verse 2 tells us it's the Feast of Tabernacles. Chapter 7, verse 10 tells us that Jesus has now gone to Jerusalem to celebrate this Feast of Tabernacles. Now, during the Feast of Tabernacles, there were various rituals and celebrations that were part of this particular festival that would take place every single year that were rich with historic significance and rich with even messianic and prophetic significance. And during this particular week, Jesus 
took the opportunity to claim himself as the Messiah when two of these particular ceremonies or rituals were taking place. And I want to talk, talk to you about these two ceremonies that were a part of the Feast of Tabernacles. If you have your pen ready on either campus, I want you to write this down today. Let's begin, first of all, by thinking about a celebration during the Feast of Tabernacles, which was called the, <clears throat> the Water Libation Ceremony. The water libation, and I know you're thinking, I'm so glad I came to church today. I just wanted to hear about a water libation <laughs> ceremony. Like, what in the world is that all about? Well, some of you know that a libation is an offering of water or wine. It's a, it's a liquid that you, you pour out on the ground, and you pour it out to the Lord. And one of the things that would happen every year, in fact, every day of the seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles, is that there would be this water libation ceremony, or this offering of water before the Lord. Here's how it would happen. There would be in Jerusalem a procession of priests who would make their way from the temple down the slopes of Mount Zion to the Pool of Siloam. They would go there and they would take a, a golden pitcher and they would dip it in the water. It would fill that pitcher up with water and then the procession would begin to make its way back up the steep slopes of the Mount Zion, back up to the temple. Now, understand there was dancing and music and, and singing all along the way to get the water, all along the way back up to the temple with the water. And when they got to the temple, they would march around the altar and then they would take this water and they would just pour it out on the ground. And everybody would clap and cheer and sing and dance. And you think, what in the world is that all about? Why, why are they pouring water out? And they're so excited about it. Let me read to you. You don't have to turn again, but let me just read to you the motivation, the logic to the Jewish mind behind this ceremony of pouring out this water. It, it's all born out of Isaiah chapter 12. Where in Isaiah chapter 12, God says to them, you're going to be in bondage to the Babylonians, but I'm going to deliver you. And when I deliver you, you're going to, listen to these, this phrase, you're going to draw water out of the wells of salvation, out of the wells of my deliverance, you're going to draw water with joy. You're going to draw water as you praise God because what he's saying to them is while you're slaves for 70 years, every time you go to the well, it'll be with a tear in your eye. Every time you go to draw water for your daily needs, you will be under the burden of slavery. But one day I'll set you free. And when you're free, you will go to the well and you will draw water with joy in your freedom. Verse number one of Isaiah chapter 12. In that day, Isaiah says, you shall say, O oh Lord, I will praise thee. Though you were angry with me, your anger has been turned away and you've comforted me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. He's delivered me. Therefore, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. And in that day, you shall say, praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his doings among the people, and make mention that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things, and this is known in all the earth. Cry and shout, inhabitants of Jerusalem, for great is the Holy One of Israel. 
in the midst of thee. So Isaiah said, there's going to come this day when you're going to draw water with praise. And that's what they do. Every day, every single morning of the seven days of this celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, they draw the water, they sing how great the Lord is, and they go pour the water out. If y'all understand, would you shout amen? So Isaiah said, we're, we're commemorating. When we pour this water out, we're remembering that we were slaves. And now we draw water in freedom. But it wasn't only a ceremony that commemorated. Remember I said these ceremonies were rich in historic significance, but they were also rich in messianic or anticipating something in prophetic significance. They were also doing this ceremony to remind themselves that the prophets promised that one day their Messiah would come. And that when their Messiah would come, he would pour out waters upon them and their land. And that he would pour out his spirit upon them. In fact, listen to what the Bible says in Ezekiel, I'm sorry, in Isaiah 44 and verse number 3. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land. And streams on the dry ground. Imagine these priests with this water, pouring water out on the ground on those days during that feast. And and quoting this prophecy from Isaiah, one day God will pour out his water upon our thirsty land. He goes on to say in Isaiah 44, I will pour out my spirit upon your children, your offspring, and my blessing on your descendants. Every time they would pour this water, they were saying, God set us free. Now we have joy, and one day God will pour out his water and the water of his spirit. Now imagine that you're at the Festival of Tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles, and all of this is happening, and the procession of priests is pouring out this water, and everyone's dancing and singing, looking forward to the day when the Messiah will come, and God will pour out his water. And imagine if in that moment... Jesus Christ, who's already well-known by the people, who already was preceded by his fame because of his miracle working. If he stood up in that moment in the temple courtyard and cried aloud these words, look at chapter 7, verse 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood. As they poured the water around, Jesus stood and said, If any man thirst, let him come to me. He that believes on me, as the scripture said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Speaking of the Spirit, if y'all are listening, shout amen. Do you see what Jesus just did? He took all of their years of pouring this water out, looking forward to the Messiah, pouring out his water, and he said, I am the Messiah. I'm the one all of your water libation offerings have been looking forward to. How do you think the people responded to that? How would you respond to that? Well, the Bible tells us how they responded. In verse number 40, some of them said, well, he he must be, I'm in John chapter number 7, verse 40. They they said, he he must be the prophet, the one that's going to precede the Messiah. Maybe that's him. Verse number 41, others of them said, no, 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 he's not the prophet. He's the Messiah. He's actually got to be the Christ. Others of them, beginning in verse number 42, said, oh, no, no, no. He can't be the Messiah. He, he's, he's coming from Galilee. The Messiah's not going to come from Galilee. Verse number 43, look at it. So there was division among the people because of him. 
Imagine all of this arguing back and forth and going from verse number 44 down through the end of the chapter. There's this debate. Who is this Jesus Christ of Nazareth who just claimed to be the Messiah? And look at verse number 53. I love it. Verse number 53, after arguing all day, the Bible says, and so they went home. (laughs) They didn't settle it. The, the, The day passed, the night came, and they just all went home. Chapter number eight is our text. But before we read the text, I want to tell you about the second celebration, the second ceremony or ritual that happened during these seven days of celebration. The first one was that water libation ceremony. Write the second one down. It is the illumination of the temple. The illumination of the temple. Here's what we know. That during the festival of tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles, every evening for those seven evenings, they would light lanterns. Now, in the temple courtyard, there would be erected every year for the Feast of Tabernacles, towers. These towers were, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian, each of these three towers stood 75 feet tall, if you can imagine. And at the top of each of these 75-foot towers, there was a cross of iron that at the end of each cross, there was a bowl. Or at the end of each of these bars, there was a bowl. So three towers, four bowls at the top of each, 12 large lamps towering 75 feet above the ground, filled with oil and wicks made of the priest's garments that had been ripped into shreds and made into wicks. And these, these lights burned every night for seven nights. Every evening they would light them and they would, they, would, they would light the entire temple courtyard. Some say they were so bright they would light out into the city of Jerusalem. They would burn through the night and the mornings they would burn out and then be replenished. And the next evening during this celebration of the festival of tabernacles, the feast of tabernacles, they would be relit. These bright lanterns had a purpose. They commemorated that when Solomon's temple was built, not the temple that was there during Jesus' day, but when Solomon's, the first temple, was built, that the Bible says that the light of God's glory came and filled that temple. And every night during the Feast of Tabernacles, they would say, we remember when the light of God's glory covered this mountain. And those lights would remind them of that. But remember, all of these ceremonies had historic significance, but also messianic or prophetic significance. And so these lights not only commemorated the glory and the light of God that was there, but it commemorated the light of the glory of God that one day would come when the Messiah would come. It was pointing them forward to what Ezekiel 44 promised, that one day the glory of the Lord would enter the temple again. And every night when those lights would burn, they would remember that one day our prophets tell us the Messiah is coming and his light will fill this mountain, fill this house. And so put yourself in that place. Imagine the seven days of the feast have just ended. The lanterns for seven nights, these towers have been burning, illuminating, pointing them toward the day when the Messiah would come. For seven days they've been pouring water 
around the altar, anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. And after the seventh night of these flames burning, just as the eighth morning dawns, and those lights are flickering, and the light is going out in that pre-dawn morning, Jesus comes into the temple. Chapter 8, verse 2. Look at it. And early in the morning, he came again into the temple. And all the people came around him, and he sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken, caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, teacher, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such a person should be stoned. But what do you say? Now they said this, verse 6 tells us, tempting him that they might have something to accuse him of. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger he wrote on the ground, wrote in the dirt on the ground as though he didn't hear them. So when they continued pressing him, asking him, he stood up and he said to them, He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone at her. And again he stooped down and began to write on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted himself up, he saw no one but the woman. He said unto her, Woman, Where are those thine accusers? Has no man condemned thee? And she said, No, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And then Jesus spake again to those who had assembled to hear him teach. He spake to them, saying, Here it is, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And all God's people said, whoa, wow, what a moment. The Pharisees who had gone home in chapter 7 verse 53 just wanted to continue the debate. And so over the course of the night, they made their arrangements made their plans, perhaps even set up the clandestine union from which this woman was dragged. They bring her before Jesus. And they said, Moses says we should stone her. What do you say? Now imagine, in that moment, Jesus, just the the morning after the final night of the Feast of Tabernacles, these lights burning looks up perhaps to the top of one of those lanterns as the last flame flickers in the rising sun. And he says, I am the light of the world. Wow. Can we draw some lessons out of this? Do you mind? Write these down. I think it's pretty obvious when you read John chapter number 8 that I know it's a story about a woman, 
But let's expand it for just a minute. We'll, then we'll kind of focus in on her. Would you just jot down that this passage teaches us, obviously, that the world is filled with darkness. It is. The world is filled with darkness. And this passage, though it's about one woman, it illustrates for us the darkness of our world and quite honestly, the darkness of our own broken lives. Here's the truth. Our world is darkened and our lives are darkened by sin. This passage teaches us about the darkness of sin. Look at verse number three, chapter eight, verse number three. The scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. Verse four, they said, Master, this woman was taken in adultery, seized from the bed of adultery in the very act. And when the Bible says she was seized in the very act of adultery, what you need to be mindful of is the fact that for all of us, like this woman, our sin is volitional. We choose to sin. All of us, in every sin that we've ever committed, have chosen to commit those sinful actions. Scripture tells us that sin begins in the heart and in the mind and it's driven by lust, but then it works itself out in our actions. And we choose to sin. And sin in our lives and sin in this world, driven by our sinful activities, is simply, it's darkness. You can almost feel the darkness of the passage. I don't mean the darkness of the, of the early morning. I mean, you can almost see the darkness on this woman. You can almost see the dark circles around her eyes and the, and the darkness of shadowy and, and even deathly guilt and shame over her face. And listen to me, listen. She is us. We are her. Just like her, we all know the darkness of our own sinful actions. Romans 3.23 says, For how many have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? It's all. For all. You say, but wait a minute, Pastor. I'm not like her. I'm not so bad. I'm, I would never do. But the Bible says we're all guilty of sin. The scripture tells us not only are we guilty of sin, but that we love darkness because of our sin. This is what John clearly says. He says, men love darkness because their deeds were evil. You know it just like I do, that when we sin, we hide. When we sin, we move to the shadows. When we sin, we embrace the darkness because the darkness covers our sin, or at least we think it does. We want it to. Ephesians chapter 5 says that before we meet Christ, we're in darkness. Paul writes in one place that Satan blinds us in our darkness lest the light of the gospel would shine to us. In Colossians, Paul writes that without Christ, we're slaves to sin. And interestingly, do you remember when Jesus died on the cross? All the Gospels record for us his death. 
And the Gospels tell us that when Jesus died on the cross, remember he was taking our sin. The Bible says he became sin for us. And when Jesus became sin, you know the Bible says that in that moment that darkness covered the face of the earth because Christ had become sin and sin is darkness. This passage reminds us of what we don't often want to be reminded of is that we are sinners and sin brings darkness. There's the darkness of sin in this woman. There's also the darkness of hypocrisy in these scribes and Pharisees. Look at verses 6 and 7. This they said, tempting him that they might have something to accuse him of. May I point out to you, these Pharisees who were doctors of the law didn't care about the law. They had no interest in defending the righteousness of God's law They were only interested in entrapping Jesus and pitting him against Moses. They didn't care about the law. They didn't care about the woman. They weren't interested in redeeming her in any way. All they wanted to do was point their fingers at her. This is why Jesus asked in verse number 10, Woman, where are your accusers? It means where are your finger pointers? Where are those who pointed their finger at you and condemned you? Do you know the only thing that makes the darkness of sin darker? It is a hypocritical religionist who only wants to point fingers at the sinner without offering the hope and the light of the gospel. It's the darkness of sin, the darkness of hypocrisy, and then thirdly, the darkness of the law. Look at it, verse number 5. They say to Jesus, Moses and the law commanded us that she should be stoned. What's the answer of the law to the woman's sin? Death. What's the answer of the law to your sin and mine? Death. Paul says in Galatians, the law could not set us free. There is a darkness that comes because all the law can do is point out our sin and condemn us for it. It cannot deliver us from it. So you have this scene early in the morning. The sun is just rising. It's still dark in Jerusalem. The the flame is flickering. The hope and anticipation of the Messiah coming and the light that he would bring one day in this feast of tabernacles is now flickering just like it did last year and just like it did the year before that and just like it did the year before that and all the way back to the time of Moses every year the light of hope went out. And on this morning, the light is going out again and the crushing condemnation of the law is pressing in and the chains of darkness are wrapping up this woman and Jesus is presented by the Pharisees with this question and he looks up perhaps at that light and he breaks the chains of darkness off of this woman and he begins to break the chains of hypocrisy and he says, I am the light that came to set you free. Praise be to God. For the light that he gives. And by the way, it's appropriate, isn't it? Because do you remember when Jesus was born? Luke chapter 2 records for us that 40 days after Mary delivered him, she and Joseph come up to the temple and they bump into a guy named Simeon. 
Do you remember Simeon? Simeon takes this little infant, 40-day-old infant in his arms and looks up to heaven and says, Lord, let me die in peace. I have seen your salvation. And Simeon looked at this infant and said, He is the light that will lighten the Gentiles. That's what John said. John chapter number 1. After John got to know Jesus, listen to what he said. Verse 4 of chapter 1, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the, dark, the light shined in darkness, and the darkness could not stop it. The darkness could not comprehend it. Simeon said he's light. And John said he's light. And in Acts chapter 9, when Saul, who would become Paul, met Jesus on the road to Damascus, you remember what happened? He said, a bright light from heaven, brighter than the sun, knocked me off my horse. Paul said, he's light. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Now, let's close by talking about the light that Jesus brings. So, in chapter number 8, Jesus says, I am the light. And he looks to this woman and he says to her, where have your accusers gone? Do you wonder about this woman? You never see her again after John chapter 8. We don't know anything about her. I've, I've often wondered, what happened to her? Did she stay with Jesus and become one of his followers? Maybe. We don't know. But here's what we do know. We know that that morning, before the sun came up, in the darkness... She was ripped from a dark room in the darkness of her sin. She was dragged through the dark streets in the darkness of a hypocritical group of Pharisees. She was condemned under the darkness of the law and she was put face to face with the light of the world. And she came into that situation in darkness but after chapter number eight, head held high, the light of forgiveness and redemption on her face, she walked out in the light of Jesus. Some of you have experienced that. You know what it's like when you've come dirty and dark and you've met Jesus and you've left in the light and clean. You know, I love about the light that Jesus brings. When you, when you think about with this light, he said, I'm the light of the world and the light that he brings into situations. One of the things that you see in this passage that I think is so telling is that the light that Jesus brings levels the playing field. It does. It levels the playing field because there was nothing level about what was happening in the beginning of this passage because the Pharisees were here and, and the woman was here and they were positioning and powerful over her and, and they were saying she's there in darkness and we're up here. That still happens today. People do that today. We're all about saying, well, who's worse and who's the biggest sinner and who's the better saint? And, and, and it's all in darkness. You know what's wonderful about the light of Jesus? When his light comes in, it just levels the playing field. There's no more shadows, no more places to hide. We just all stand on the same ground and we all confess we're just sinners. And we need his light. His light levels the playing field. Number two, his light frees us from condemnation. Verse number 10 Jesus said, woman, where are your accusers? Those pointing their fingers at you. Is no one condemning you? And she said, no man, Lord. Look at verse 11. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. This is what his light does. 
Do you know, if you're living in sin today, you're living under the condemnation, not only of guilt before God, but your own guilt and shame. You're hiding. And you, you're, every moment of your life, you're condemned by your own conscience because you're hiding in the darkness. Here's what, here's what the Bible says, that when we come to Jesus, he sets us free and that light breaks the power of condemnation. And the third thing that the light that he brings does is it changes our direction. Listen to verse number 12. Then Jesus spake and said unto them, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Here's this woman in darkness, chains of darkness, darkness under the law, condemned by the law, darkness of hypocrisy, drug before the light of the world. He levels the playing field forgives her and elevates her and says, now go sin no more and go live in the freedom that I'm offering to you. And he offers you that exact same freedom today. Now one last thought. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are the light of the world. So wait a minute, I thought he said he was the light of the world. He is the light of the world, but he's not here any longer. He's going back to heaven, and we are the body of Christ, and he indwells us. And so now, Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world. Jesus said, no man who lights a candle puts it under a bushel and hides it. But Everybody who has a candle puts it on a lampstand and puts it in the house, raises it high so that it gives light to everybody in the house. And so you should let your light shine before men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You are the light of the world. So loved one, in a dark world where hypocrites abound and where the law condemns and where people are bound up in darkness, go shine the light because the light of the world dwells within you.